We have a little book of children's sermons by J.C. Ryle that I like to read to our kids. One of the sermons is called No More Crying, and it describes three different places. Firstly, there's a place where there's a great deal of crying, and this is our world. Though there is much beauty in our world, we know that there is much pain and much crying. Secondly, there is a place where there is nothing else but crying. This is hell. And thirdly, there is a place where there is no crying at all. That is heaven. And we do not have to look far to know why J.C. Ryle describes our world as a world with a great deal of crying. Our world is broken with temptations to sin all around us and within us, with situations that confound us and adversaries that threaten us. And knowing we live in such a world, a world where there is a great deal of crying, God has given us our text for today. He has given us this text to put our world into a larger perspective. For those of us trusting in Christ today, he has given us this text to encourage us. For those apart from Christ today, he has given this text as a warning. Our text this afternoon, which we just read, is Exodus 15, which is the song of Moses or the song of the sea. You may remember we covered verses 1 through 8 in the sermon a few months ago. So now we're continuing with the second half, verses 9 through 21. Before we get to the text, we need some background. So the Israelites had just crossed safely through the Red Sea. You all know the story very well. They had seen their enemies, the Egyptians, destroyed as the walls of water came crashing down on them. And in response to this great deliverance, Moses and the Israelites sang a song of praise to God. And the song is full of truths about our God. It recounts God's power and sovereignty. His greatness, his majesty, he is in control of kings and nations. He is in control of the wind and the waves. So now as we take up our text, the whole company of Israel stands on the other side of the sea. They look back behind them and they look forward ahead of them. They look back on the sea where they saw God's great deliverance and they look forward to a home in Canaan, the promised land. But first, they have to pass through a wilderness. The situation is not unlike our own. Like the Israelites, we look back and we look forward. We look back at a great deliverance, the great deliverance of all of history. And we look forward to a future hope, the hope of all mankind. We look back to Christ and the great deliverance from sin and death that he accomplished on the cross. A great deliverance to which all prior deliverances point. And we look forward to the consummation of history when God will make all things new in the heavenly Canaan. But first, we pass through a wilderness. We must pass through this world where there is a great deal of crying. We must pass through this present evil age amid a flood of mortal ills prevailing with devils filled that threaten to undo us. And so eager to hear what God has to teach us and eager to learn how we might live in such a time and place as ours, we go to the text. Our text has three main parts. There we go. Our text has three main parts. A wonderful deliverance, 
verses 9 through 10. A worshiping people, verses 11 through 12 and 21. And a wilderness way, verses 13 through 18. That is our outline. A wonderful deliverance, a worshiping people, a wilderness way. We'll take them one at a time. First, a wonderful deliverance. Our text takes us back to the other side of the sea, before the great deliverance through the sea, and all the way back into the mind of the enemy, into the mind of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who pursued Israel into the sea. So if we look at verse 9, we see Moses and the Israelites sing. The enemy, Pharaoh, said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. There's a progression in the enemy's words. First, I will pursue. The enemy plans to pursue the people of God. Second, I will overtake. In the enemy's mind, the pursuit will end in overtaking God's people. Third, I will divide the spoil. The enemy plans on victory and plunder. The enemy will take the Israelites' stuff. We remember that the Israelites had just plundered the Egyptians. So possibly the Pharaoh has in his mind revenge to get the stuff back. Fourth, my desire shall have its fill of them. Not only will the enemy take the Israelites' stuff, he will do whatever he wants with them. There will not be any part of the enemy's desire left unaccomplished. His desire will be filled up. This is complete subjugation to the will of the enemy. Fifth, I will draw my sword. Sixth, my hand will destroy them. The enemy plans nothing less than the utter destruction of Israel. So I ask you, what, what should we think about the enemy's plans? Is this just crazed hubris of a defeated Pharaoh? Well, we've entered the mind of the enemy. Now for a moment, let's get into the mind of the Israelites. They were trapped on the sea, with the sea in front and the Egyptians in the back. They were a defenseless band of just freed slaves, and they were utterly helpless. Humanly speaking, this was not hubris. Humanly speaking, the enemy was right. The Egyptians would surely have their way with the helpless Israelites. But we do not live in a godless, humanly speaking only world, do we? What happens next? In verse 10, we see God's response. God's response. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. The enemy sought to destroy God's people, but God destroyed the enemy. The brevity and style of this short verse indicate this, this was no great trouble for the God of the universe. Defeating the greatest king of the earth did not exercise it in the least the strength of the Almighty God. Behold the redemption of the Lord. Behold a wonderful deliverance. Which brings us now to the second part of our outline, a worshiping people. In light of this wonderful deliverance, what do the people do? They worship and they sing. Verses 11 through 12. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. A wonderful deliverance produces a worshiping people. 
takes us to the third part of our outline, a wilderness way. At this point, the song moves from reflecting on the past deliverance of the Lord to reflecting on a future with the Lord, looking forward to a future in His presence. The future of God's people is with God in His holy abode. Notice the section from verse 13 through 18 begins and ends with reference to God's abode, His dwelling place. Verse 13, at the beginning of this section, says of God, You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. We notice the past tense, you have guided them. This is the past tense of certainty. Past tense of certainty. John Calvin comments that the use of the past tense confirms the certainty of the matter. The meaning of verse 13 is, you will certainly guide them in by your strength to your holy abode. And then at the end of the section in verse 17, again, God's abode is referenced. Verse 17 says of God, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. God's presence is the sure destination of God's redeemed people. And between these two promises that the people of God will be guided into and brought into God's presence, into his holy abode, we have verses 14 through 17 the passing through enemy territory on the wilderness way. Our family likes to watch the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe movie. In the movie, there's a battle scene in which Peter, the good high king, fights the white witch who has been oppressing Narnia for many years. In the scene, the witch gets the upper hand. She raises her sword to kill Peter. Peter is utterly helpless. And then just at that moment, Aslan, the king above all high kings of Narnia, roars from the top of a nearby cliff. The witch looks up at Aslan. She whispers to herself, Impossible. Impossible. Because she had thought that Aslan had died. She had thought that her victory was secured. She had thought that she would pursue, overtake, plunder, and destroy. But there is Aslan roaring from the mountain. Before the witch has time to kill Peter, Aslan pounces on the witch and consumes her with a roar. From that moment, the battle rages around Peter and Aslan in time-lapse view. That is, the army rushes by as a blur. The battle rages, but for Peter and Aslan, it, it is as if time stands still. Peter gets up and looks at Aslan, and Aslan says, It is finished. The battle is raging all about, but it is finished. This is the picture we have here. The Israelites were helpless and about to be destroyed by their enemy, and then God worked a great, impossible, it is finished type deliverance through the sea. And now the onward journey through the wilderness way is all in time lapse view because the decisive victory has been won. Because of the great deliverance at the sea, their destination in Canaan is secure. Though the battle rages and there is, is a pathway through the wilderness that must be traveled, the Israelites will surely enter the land. They will enter Canaan. So as we read verses 14 through 16 of our text, let us imagine every line of the text passing as a blur and time-lapse view. Every line is a battle along the wilderness way as God says to the Israelites, it is finished. God has delivered Israel and now, the people have heard, they tremble. 
Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. And then in verse 18, we see the Lord, Yahweh, the king above all high kings, will reign forever and ever. We know that the wilderness way turned into a wilderness wandering for 40 years, followed by a long period of conquest with many battles. But the Israelites did finally enter Canaan. We see in Joshua 21, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. They did enter Canaan. So we summarize. The Israelites were being chased by an enemy that sought their destruction. They had no way of escape. They were utterly helpless. They watched as God provided a wonderful deliverance through the sea, and it is finished type deliverance that made the people a worshiping people and made sure Israel would enter Canaan through the wilderness way. This is the account of the Exodus, and this is why Moses and the Israelites sing the song of the sea. And yet, what are we to make of this exodus through the Red Sea? So many years ago, is it relevant to us? Is it mere ancient history? It is that. But is it nothing more? No, we do know the rest of the story. We can trace the exodus theme as it develops through redemptive history. We know that with most of the Israelites, God was not pleased, and because of their sin, the Israelites were eventually kicked out of Canaan. They were sent into exile in Babylon. The Babylonian exile was another helpless situation. It was a helpless situation that required another miraculous deliverance. It required a second exodus, and God did give Israel a second exodus. We've been seeing this in the sermon series on Isaiah. In Isaiah 48, for example, Jesus himself commands the people to go out from Babylon. So we, hear the we hear Exodus in the words, go out. And Israel did go out from Babylon and return home by the mighty working of God in history. And yet still again, we know that the nation of Israel by and large remained stubborn, sinful, and under the rule of foreign nations until the time of Christ. So the first exodus through the sea and the second exodus from Babylon, though they were great and mighty acts of God for which we should stand in awe, they were not enough. They were temporary. They did not ultimately deliver. They did not bring a people into God's presence in any final or decisive sense. So yet another exodus was needed. And then Christ came, born of a woman born under the law that he might redeem. Hear the Exodus imagery in that word, redeem those under the law. We know that during Jesus' ministry, he performed many miracles to demonstrate his deity. There's one miracle in particular that is relevant for the Exodus theme, which is the transfiguration where Jesus appears in glory to Peter, James, and John. During the transfiguration, Jesus speaks with Moses, the great leader of the first exodus through the Red Sea and Elijah. And what do they speak about? 
they speak about this ultimate exodus, the final exodus. We see it in Luke 9, 29. We read, and as he, Jesus, was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his, that is Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The ESV has departure, but the word is exodus. It is as if Jesus says to Moses, Hey, remember that great deliverance that we did through the Red Sea? That was great. That was great. But you haven't seen anything yet. That was just a precursor and a pointer. You exited Egypt. I will exit death. And I will rise on the third day so that all who are united to me through faith will also defeat death. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans 6, 3-5. Do you not know that all of us, Jew and non-Jew alike, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the true, final, decisive, it is finished deliverance, the final exodus. And this is where you and I are in the flow of redemptive history. The exodus to which all other exoduses point has been accomplished. The final and decisive victory to which all the other victories point has been won. Jesus rose from the grave. He ascended to the Father in heaven. Praise be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask, what does it all mean? We'll take our applications in the order of our outline. First application, a wonderful deliverance. Here. We must come to terms with the reality of the situation for sinners apart from Christ. This includes sinners apart from Christ in our families, sinners apart from Christ in our neighborhoods, workplaces, at the grocery store, possibly even sinners apart from Christ sitting in this room. Your enemy is in pursuit. He will overtake you and have his way with you. He will utterly destroy you forever. You are running a hell-bound race. Do you know it? And who is your enemy but God himself, the God of the universe who controls the lightning and, and the thunder, the God who sustains you every moment in existence by the word of his power. He is your enemy. He has said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, declares the Lord. He has said, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. Sinner apart from Christ, know the passing pleasures of sin well, for they will last only a season, maybe a moment, maybe a few mortal years, and they are all you will have. You have nothing but the fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. 
And when this passing world is done, there will be only misery forever for you. Do you know it? Do you know your great enemy? Or, consider in this room who does not yet acknowledge Christ, neither does Christ acknowledge you. Get off the fence right now and follow Christ. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? But, repentant sinner trusting in Christ. Though we were utterly helpless, humanly speaking, dead in our transgressions and sins, we have been saved by the mighty hand of God. Behold the redemption of the Lord. Behold the wonderful deliverance. We were helpless and dead. Helpless and dead. God made us alive together with Christ. Though we walk through this life of battles and uncertainties, fears and foes, we have been justified. We have been pardoned of all our sin and accepted as righteous in God's sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by grace alone. We have been adopted, received into the company of God's children with the right to all the privileges of his Son. We are being sanctified, renewed in the whole person after the image of God and enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. And we have been glorified. We will surely be openly acknowledged and acquitted on the day of judgment and shall be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. Do we know this? Do we know we stand on the other side of the sea? Behold the redemption of the Lord. His kingdom is forever. Second application, a worshiping people. In the light of such a wonderful deliverance, let us worship. Let us rejoice in the Lord. Let us say with the Israelites on the seashore, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? There's none. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Let us say with the Apostle Paul, death is swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And is this not also the final exhortation of our text in verse 21? In this verse, Miriam repeats verse 1 of the Song of Moses. But this time it is not in the first person as a testimony. I will sing to the Lord. This time... It is an exhortation or a plea or an invitation. And this is the invitation from God to us today. Sing. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider and every other enemy of God's people he has thrown into the sea. But this means more than songs. We'll remember that in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul uses 11 chapters to behold the wonderful deliverance that we have in Christ. And in light of such a deliverance, he makes the same plea to worship God. He says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living, sacri- as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In the light of such a wonderful deliverance, let us be a worshiping people with both our voices and our lives. Let us really consider God's will and design for us and how our lives may be lived in worship to God. Third application, a wilderness way. 
Our life is to be viewed in time-lapse view. By this, I, I, I'm not saying that the details of our life are not important. Of course, they are. We know that not sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's will. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that, like the Israelites, we are on the beach on the other side of the sea, and every detail of our life is to be viewed in light of the it-is-finished redemption that we have received. Will our uncertain circumstances overpower us? No. Will we ultimately be defeated? No. Why? Because we are so strong? No. Because we are united to Christ, and his victory is our victory. When Christ said, it is finished on the cross, our redemption and the redemption of all the elect of God was secured. So in this world of much crying, we do not mourn like the world mourns or fear like the world fears. We have a bold confidence, even in this uncertain life, that God works all things together for our good. Let's remember this when we feel threatened by all the uncertainties in this wilderness path. When we think that anger, impatience, lust, pride, worry, or any other sin might get the best of us. When we feel helpless against sudden illness or the gradual decay of our bodies. When we are abandoned by those we love. When we feel afraid of kings or rulers or presidents or senators, governors, mayors, school boards, the spirit of the age or anything else. God reigns over all. He has won the decisive victory, and at any time, without the slightest exertion, he can overcome any enemy of God's people, which means that any enemy God allows to persist, any fight he has us fighting, any situation he has placed us in, he does not for our destruction, but in love, according to his good and sovereign purposes. And so in the face of any temptation, situation or adversary, big or small, we can boldly say with David, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or we can say with Paul, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or, we can say with Polycarp, a great martyr of the church, who when his neighbors and the state became his adversaries and called him to deny Christ or be burned at the stake, said, Hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian, and your fire lasts only a moment. There is another fire which is eternal, and of that I am afraid. Why do you delay? Come do what you will. And they burned him at the stake and stabbed him to death. And then he reached the heavenly Canaan, which had been guaranteed to him by his wonderful deliverance. And so let us pray with all the saints throughout history. Oh God, my Father, I worship you. And I thank you that I may share in the sufferings of Christ on this wilderness way and that I may also share in the resurrection to eternal life. Now, I'd like to leave you with a, a benediction from Ephesians chapter 1. As we consider this benediction, 
let us consider our wonderful deliverance. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering, in your, my, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen.